Take your Bible tonight. Let's go to the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, next to the last book in the Old Testament. If you find uh, the division between the Old and the New and go back through the book of Malachi, you'll come to the book of Zechariah. And chapter 13, we're going to look at just one verse tonight as our text. And uh, we're going to leave it for a while. And then I promise we'll come back to it. Zechariah chapter 13. And verse number six, the Bible says, and one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. We do not know what Jesus Christ looked like when he was here on the earth. We don't have any actual pictures or photographs of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, artists have painted pictures of what they think the Lord may have looked like. Artists have sketched pictures. And probably all of us in our mind have a visual, uh, probably based on some of those pictures we've seen, of what we may think that the Lord looked like. But we don't really know for sure. I think God knew it was best we did not have a picture of the Lord. If we had a picture, we'd probably worship the picture instead of the person. So we don't know exactly what he looked like. We have no idea what he looked like as he hung on the cross of Calvary. Now again, artists have painted pictures. And normally when you see a picture of Christ on the cross, you see some drops of blood at his forehead from the crown of thorns. You see some blood at his hands where the spikes were placed. Perhaps some blood at his feet as well. We have no idea. Isaiah said in chapter 52 and verse 14, as many as saw him were astonished at him. His visage was so marred more than any man and his face more than the sons of men. C.I. Schofield in his notes on that particular verse says, so marred was his aspect on the cross, he was unrecognizable as a human being. Isaiah in chapter 53 said, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. There was no beauty that we should desire him. You know, every so often in our life, it is a good idea in our mind to go back to Calvary. To go back to the cross, back to that place called Golgotha, a hill of the skull. We need to visit there tonight. Perhaps in our mind we could go back to that place even as David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looked ahead to that coming crucifixion of the Messiah as he wrote that messianic psalm in chapter 22, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cried unto thee in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and they were, they were delivered. They cried, and thou didst deliver them, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. Oh, they that pass by shoot out the lip. They mock, saying, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he'll have him. Many bulls have compassed me. 
Strong bulls of Bashna beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths. As a raven and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It melteth in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, for thou hast brought me to the dust of death. Many dogs have encircled me. The assembly of the wicked have encircled me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They stare and look upon me. They parted my garments among them and upon my vesture. Did they cast lots? Will, will you go with me tonight back to Calvary? And will you see the wounds of Jesus? Wounded for me. Wounded for me. There on that cross, he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions, and now I'm free. All because Jesus was wounded for me. I want you to realize, first of all, tonight, that the wounds of Jesus were administered violently. This was not a kind, loving crowd that placed Jesus on a cross. This was not a group of Roman soldiers that somehow had pity or, or, or love in their hearts of the one they were nailing to that tree. They hated Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter preaches to the crowd that crucified Christ on the day of Pentecost. And in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, he looks at that crowd and he says, You have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain the Son of God. They hated Jesus Christ. And may I just pause? To say when, when you get saved and when you truly live a godly life for Christ, the world's going to hate you. Jesus promised it. If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Paul said all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a promise. They hated Christ. I, I, I think of what they did to him even before they put him on the cross. The Bible says in John 19 and verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now scourging was a very common form of punishment in Bible days. When someone would commit a crime, this was often the punishment that was administered for certain crimes. Now the Jews, when someone would be scourged, they would strip them of their clothing down to their waist. They would make them bend over an object like this and expose their back. The Jews then would take a flogging or a scourging tool. It was basically just a leather whip or a leather strap. At the end of that leather strap was a sharp object. Sometimes they attached a piece of iron, sometimes a piece of glass, sometimes a sharp bone or a stone, and they would place it on the end of that whip, and with the back exposed, they would put stripes upon the back of this one who had committed a crime. Now, the Jews had a limit as to how many stripes they could place upon the back of a criminal. The maximum penalty under Jewish law was 39 stripes. The Jews considered the 40th stripe to bring death. So the maximum penalty under Jewish custom and law was 39 stripes. You might recall in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul said of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes save one. So five different times for preaching the gospel, Paul came under the Jewish scourge of 40 stripes save or minus one, 39 stripes, maximum penalty. 
However, you know that Jesus was not scourged by the Jews. He was turned over to the Romans for scourging. Now, the Romans had no limit. They had no maximum penalty. In fact, Roman history tells us that often they would scourge a person as many as 150 times. They used what was called a cat of nine tails. It was a rod with nine pieces of leather attached to the end of that rod. At the end of each piece of leather, a sharp object, as I described a moment ago. When my wife and I visited Israel back in 1975, we were taken one day down into a a cave-like room. It, It appeared to be below the surface of the ground. It was a very small room, maybe about 12 by 12 feet. I remember walking into that room with the others and thinking, what, what, what are we seeing here? There's nothing here. There was no, nothing on the walls, nothing on the floor, no furniture, nothing. Just an empty room. And the guide walked in. He said, you're probably wondering what we're looking at here. He said, this was a room that was used by the Romans for scourging. He said, we don't know if Jesus was scourged in this exact spot. He said, there are 12 of these rooms in and around Jerusalem. He said, this one happens to be the closest to Golgotha, so it could be the actual place where Jesus was scourged, but we do not know. He said, when the Romans would bring the person down here for scourging, they would strip him of all of his clothing. He said, look at the ceiling. We looked up, and in that stone was hewed out a beam and it it, it went across the entire width of that room it was probably maybe four or five inches down three or four inches across and it spanned the entire width of the room in that beam there were two holes cut about arms width apart the guide said once they had stripped them of their clothing they would tie leather bands to one to each wrist and they would pull the body upward to these two holes in this beam. They would stretch the naked body upward as far as it could be stretched so the skin of the body would be absolutely tight. Now with the body stretched upward and naked, they would take turns, these soldiers would, with a cat of nine tails, whipping the body in that stretched position. The cords would wrap around the body. The sharp objects would bite into the flesh. And the skill of that soldier was just as the, as the iron or the glass would pierce the skin. They would rip the cat of nine tails away, tearing the flesh from off the body, exposing the very organs. Imagine 150 times. The guide said, look at the floor. We looked down, and directly beneath that beam in the ceiling, there was a a trench, a gutter cut into that floor. And the guide said that was so the blood could flow out of the room. Imagine what the body of Christ would have looked like before he ever went to the cross. Now, the Bible says after they scourged him, they put his own clothes on him and let him out. Have you ever cut yourself, and then gotten your clothing into the cut. Maybe in elementary school, you were out playing at recess, and you fell down and scraped your knee, but you kept playing, and you came back into class, you sat down, and later the teacher said to stand, and your pant leg was stuck to the wound. Remember that? The dry cloth had helped to coagulate the blood, it helped to stop the bleeding, but Now, to take the garment off, you've got to be careful because it's kind of part of the scab that's formed. And 
when you take it off, you're going to probably break that loose and start the bleeding process all over again. So after they had scourged Jesus, they put his own clothes on him and led him out to a place called Praetorium, also referred to in Scripture as the Common Hall. And your Bible says when they got him there, they stripped him of his raiment. They didn't, they didn't carefully remove it. Now opening that bleeding process once again, they placed a purple robe around him. They put a reed in his right hand. When they had plaited a crown of thorns, those thorns still grow in Israel to be two and a half inches in length. When they had plaited a crown of thorns, they placed it on his head and they took the reed and and smote him on the head, driving those thorns down into his skull. Now with his eyes blindfolded, those Roman soldiers took turns with an open hand, slapping him across the face and pulling the blindfold up and saying, who just hit you? Come on, you're supposed to be God. Which one of us just hit you? You're no God. They pulled the blindfold down and slapped him again and again and again. And this went on and on and on. And the Bible says after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off from him. Now they've opened those wounds again. Put his own clothes back on him and led him out to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, the father of Alexander and Rufus, him they compelled to bear his cross. Now, in the time of Christ, there were seven different types of crosses that were used for crucifixion. We think of the small letter T cross as the symbol of our Christianity, and there's nothing wrong with that. That was certainly one of the types of crosses that was used. The most common cross that was used at the crucifixion of Christ's time was a capital T cross. This cross in its entirety weighed 325 pounds, making it virtually impossible for any man to carry, particularly in the condition he would have been in. From what I can discover in Roman history, these crosses were cut in two parts. The center post, which weighed 200 pounds, was left at the places of execution, places like Golgotha, and it was used over and over and over again. Customary for the person to be executed to carry that piece of wood from his sentence to his place of execution. However, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Simon of Cyrene carried this cross. When they got to the top of Calvary, they placed that piece of wood onto the ground. They took the battered and bleeding and bruised body of our Savior, and they laid him back onto that cross piece of wood, stretching his hands outward. The Roman soldiers took Roman spikes five to seven inches in length. They found the slight separation between the two main bones in the wrist, It was here that they punctured the skin and drove those spikes through the hands into that cross piece of wood. Once the hands were firmly affixed to that piece of wood, they would lift it with the body attached to the top of that center post and drop it into position. Now, the knees were bent slightly, the legs were crossed at the ankles, and one spike was placed through the feet into that center post. Now, the knees were bent slightly, Had a person been crucified with his knees locked, gravity would pull him down on the cross. Air would fill his lungs, but he would not be able to exhale and would suffocate almost instantaneously. The crucifixion was not meant to be instantaneous. 
like an electric chair or lethal injection today. It was meant to be carried out for hours, sometimes days. And so they would bend the leg slightly so the person on the cross could push and pull on those nails in order to exhale. Gravity would pull them back down, air would fill the lungs, and in order to breathe or to speak, they had to push and pull upward. Jesus did speak seven times. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now the crowds came by, wagged their heads. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross and we will believe him. They that were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Have you ever wondered why? Sixth hour in the Bible is noon, is it not? That's when the sun is highest in the sky. Nine o'clock, or uh, the sixth hour would be, uh, ninth hour would be three o'clock. So for these three hours, the Bible states that the sun was darkened over the entire earth. Why? Everything I've described up to this point is physical. Jesus is dying in excruciatory physical death. But so are the thieves. They were crucified in the exact same way. But at noon, something very unique was happening on that center cross. For it was at that moment that God the Father took the sin of the entire human race, all of it, every single sin, every sin that had been committed up to the cross, every sin being committed at the cross, every sin that would be committed after the cross, every sin of the billions of people that have lived before and the billions of people that will perhaps live after, every sin of every person, your sin, my sin, all of it, God the Father at that moment took the weight of that sin and placed it on his son to bear. Because God the Father was perfect and holy, he could not look at his son bearing our sin And so he blotted the light of the physical sun from the earth and turned his back for the first time on his son in eternity. And it was then that Jesus cried from that cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And now he bears our judgment, our hell. And finally, his voice is lifted. It is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up the ghost. And even after he was dead, this crowd's not done. For verse 31 of John 19 says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for the Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So here came the religious leaders of the day. They come to Pilate and they said, Pilate, tomorrow is our feast. Tomorrow is our holiday. We want to celebrate, but we can't celebrate with those bodies up on Golgotha. Send the soldiers to break their legs tonight so we can get the bodies down and we can have our party tomorrow. 
And so Pilate sent the soldiers. They break the legs of the one, of the other that was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one having a spear. The Roman soldiers carried what was called an infantry spear, five to seven feet in length. One having a spear pierced his side. Forthwith came there out blood, water. I remind us tonight, he's already dead. He's already dead. Now this spear is rammed up into his heart. The blood flows. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It is the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. These wounds were administered violently. But secondly, these wounds were accepted voluntarily. Why did Jesus allow this to happen? Wasn't he God? Could he not have called, as the song suggests, 10,000 angels to deliver him? Why, why did he let this happen? Was, was he, by saying nothing, by doing nothing, was he admitting that he was worthy of this judgment, that he had committed some kind of a sin that was worthy of this kind of death? No. No, a thousand times, no. First John 3, 5 says, in him is no sin. He was tempted in all points, Hebrews said, like as we, and yet without sin. The writer Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah. He had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. Peter called him a lamb slain, without spot, without blemish. So why? Why did he allow this to happen to him? Every time you and I look in the mirror, we have the answer. Christ died for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was taken as a lamb before a shears, as a, as a sheep before a shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he shall be cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people is he stricken. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to make his soul an offering for our sin. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich. Yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye through his poverty might be rich. I am the good shepherd he said. And I give my life to the sheep, for the sheep. I gave my back to the smiters. My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. These wounds were accepted voluntarily. My wife and I lived for a very short time in the state of West Virginia. I was traveling in revival work by myself, and my wife was at home keeping the office. And 
was the early part of our ministry, early part of our lives together, and we didn't have children. And it was a tough time. I would be out for four or five weeks at a time and then return home for a few days and back on the road. And it wasn't exactly what we thought was best, but it was God's will, and we were happy to be serving the Lord. But it was tough at times. And I was finishing a meeting down in southern Ohio. And I was going to be off for about the next five days. And I was so excited. I'd been on the road for several weeks, and I missed my wife. And I, I called her on Friday afternoon, the last day of the meetings, and I said, Diane, I can't wait to get home. Seems like forever. And I said, I looked at the map, and I, and I found I'm only four hours from home. I, I didn't realize I was this close. I said, I, I think after the meeting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive home tonight. She said, oh, John, don't do that. She said, it's supposed to be really foggy. It's been foggy the last several nights. It's supposed to be foggy again tonight, and there are deer everywhere. Please wait till the morning. I said, I'll be careful. She said, well, I'll wait up for you. I said, no, don't wait up. It's going to be like 2 in the morning. Just go to bed, and, 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 and I'll get there when I can. Well, after the meeting, I packed up and got in the car, and oh, it was foggy. <laughs> and there were deer everywhere. But I maneuvered my way down through the mountains into West Virginia and into our town of Smithburg. Smithburg had two buildings, our house and the county highway building. That was Smithburg, West Virginia. I pulled into the driveway, and it was 2.30 in the morning, and the light was on, and she had waited up. She had a little food there, and we sat down and just, you know, talked and tried to catch up a little bit. And, and, uh, and uh, in the midst of that conversation, she said, John, this time while you're home, I'd like to go somewhere. I didn't want to go anywhere. I just got home. I said, well, honey, where do you want to go? I mean, we were 50 miles from the nearest town of any size. We were 50 feet from the nearest copperhead snake. There wasn't a lot to do in West Virginia. I said, well, where do you want to go? She said, I don't care. I just, I, I'm, I, I work in the house. I, I live in the house. And we have the office in the house. She said, the only time I get out is to go to church and, and maybe run to the store. She said, I, I, I just want to go somewhere. I said, well, boy, I'll have to think about that. She was cleaning up some dishes after we ate a little bit. And I picked up the weekly paper out of West Union, West Virginia, four pages. I scanned the front page, all the major news. Somebody's cat got tucked, stuck in a tree, and they got that, they got that saved. And after reading the main news, I kind of skipped the middle section, went right to the back, because on the back, they always had the bottom half of that newspaper, some classified ads. And as I turned it over, on the very bottom right-hand corner, there was a box that took up maybe about a quarter of that half a page, and it was advertising an auction, an estate sale, the next morning at 10 o'clock in a town about 20 miles away. And I said, uh, hey, Diane, there, there's an estate sale tomorrow, 10 o'clock. Would you like to go to that? She said, oh, that'd be fun. I said, well, let's get to bed. Let's get some sleep. And so we, we tried to get a little sleep, and we got up early the next morning, and it wasn't really that early, but for us it seemed like it, and, and we got ready and got in the car, and we began to drive to this town that I had never been to before. And in West Virginia, it's hard to find stuff. Amen. We didn't have GPS. We didn't have any of that kind of stuff. And, 
And uh, we're, we're trying to follow these roads and all those, those, the roads, they run according to the hollers. And you have to stop and ask, ask directions. I mean, it doesn't matter how much of a man you are. You've got to stop and ask directions. And in West Virginia, here's how they give you directions. They'll say, oh, you're, you're, you're on the right road. You go down this road, and, and, and when you pass the third big tree on the right, you've gone too far. You've got to come back and take the next left. You go down that road till you cross the river twice. When you've crossed it the second time, you've gone too far. You've got to come back, take that next right. That's how they give you directions. We had to stop three times and ask for directions. We, we finally found this town, and, and the auction had already started. It was way past 10 o'clock, and, but, but that was okay. We weren't there to buy anything. We're just there on a date. We're just there to be together. And so we walked up. Well, growing up in Wisconsin, I went to all kinds of farm auctions with my dad, and when you'd go to an auction in Wisconsin, you'd, you'd uh, bid on things, you know, by nodding your head or raising your hand, but not in West Virginia. They had a whole different system. When you went to an auction, you had to go through a little gate, and they had a table. There was some ladies sitting, and, and they would take your name, and they would take your address, and they would take your phone number. They would get all your vital information, and then they would assign you a number. They would give you a card about this size, and it had a number on it, like 14. And they'd give you that card, and they'd write it next to your name. So then when you went into the auction, if you were going to bid on something, you held up your card. Instead of holding up your hand or nodding, you, you held up your card. And if you won the bid, then the auctioneer would read the number. The secretary would write it down next to the price. And when you checked out of the auction, you turned in your card, and they would add up all the things that were ascribed to your number, and you'd pay it, the bill and take your stuff and go. Well, we had to go through the process. They took our information, gave us the card with the number. We didn't need it. We weren't there to buy anything. We're just there on a date. Well, all the people, they're up by the house. They're around a bunch of wagons up there, and they're selling all the junk, all the stuff that nobody wants but everybody buys. They're, they're up there selling all that stuff. We didn't even bother to go up there because our eyes were drawn to the front lawn of that estate. All over that front lawn were these beautiful Pieces of antique furniture. This couple that had died were in their 80s. And their children were selling off their things. And as a young couple, we, we had never seen uh, things like this. We, we had never seen the, the kind of craftsmanship in these, in these chests of drawers and chairs and bedroom sets and, and, and tables. And we were just drawn to it. And so they had rows and rows of it all across that front lawn. So, so we went down and we started down that first row. And we're looking at all this furniture and, oh, wow, I wonder what that's going to sell for. And I wonder who bid on that. And boy, wouldn't that be nice to have. And, and, and we're just going down there enjoying the beautiful day. We got to the end of the first row. We came up the second row. When we came to the end of that second row, back to where we had started, there was a table there, probably about six feet long and maybe about three feet wide. Standing at the end of the table was a little boy. Couldn't have been more than seven, eight, maybe nine. He was standing there, and he was looking into a box that was at the end of that table. Wasn't touching anything. In fact, his hands were behind his back. But he's peering into this box. Well, we kind of just went around him and went down the third row. We looked at all the things in the third row, and we came up the fourth row. When we came back up that fourth row, I noticed that little boy. He's still standing there, just peering in that box. Well, now I got curious. I'm wondering what's in the box. In West Virginia, at an auction, it could be anything. 
It could be a snake. It could be mice. It could be anything. But we didn't bother him. We went on. But I kept my eye on that box. Well, pretty soon they had sold everything up there by the house. And the whole group of people, they moved down into a central place there on that lawn. And they set up a stage and set up a table and repositioned everything. And, and now they were bringing these items to the auctioneer, these pieces of furniture and various things. And, and they're going to sell these. And I kept my eye on that box and that little boy. And pretty soon someone came and picked up that box and brought it to the auctioneer stand. And that little boy, sure enough, he followed it. He followed it, and he was standing right smack dab in front of the auctioneer. Well, I moved up close where I could see this. And it wasn't long until the auctioneer, he reached down in that box, and he pulled out an old stuffed dog. I mean, this thing was old. When he pulled it out of the box, dust billowed into the sky. One eye was dangling from a string. There was stuffing coming out from one of the legs, and the tail had been chewed on by a real live dog or a real live kid, one of the two. Well, he held up that ratty old to- uh, dog, and he said, all right, all right, give me a quarter, a quarter for this dog. And the boy's hand shot up in the air right in front of his face. He said, I've got a quarter right here. Who'll give me 50 cents? The boy's hand went up again. The auctioneer said, son, no, 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 no. You've got the first bid. If no one else bids, y- you-, you can have it for 25 cents. Who'll give me 50 cents? There must have been a guy in the back swatting flies with his cart. I don't know what he was doing. My dad told me, son, when you go to an auction, put your hands in your pockets or you'll come home with something you don't want. (laughs) I tried to remember that. Some guy was waving his cart around. He said, I got 50 cents back there. Who'll give me 75? Boy's hand shot up. He said, I got 75. Who'll give me a dollar? A dollar. Well, now everybody's eyes were on this ragged old toy going for a dollar. It wasn't worth a nickel. Finally, he said, sold, right here, this boy, 75 cents. What's your number, son? Oh, you don't have a number, do you? And where's your mom, dad? Hey, mom, dad, your boy's up here buying stuff. Where are you? Raise your number quickly. Let's go. Where are you, dad? Where are you, mom? The boy said, sir, I don't have parents. The auctioneer said, son, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I I didn't mean to embarrass you. I I apologize. Um, I'll tell you what. We won't worry about a card or a number. We'll just take care of this between you and me. You give me the 75 cents, and I'll give you the toy. I watched as that boy's hands went deep. You know, those ragged blue jeans he was wearing. Tears began to trickle from his eyes. The auctioneer said, son, don't you have any money? The boy was speechless. The auctioneer said, son, I'm sorry. I, I, um, I, I, I can't just give you the toy. My job is to sell these things. I can't give them away. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to give the toy to the man in the back. I'm really sorry. The boy had already turned. He was walking past the crowd, tears now streaming from his eyes. The crowd was deathly silent. No one seemed to know what to do or say. But suddenly a man's voice pierced the air from the back. He said, sir, give that boy the dog. Put it on this number. 
The auctioneer read the number. The secretary wrote it down next to the 75 cents. The auctioneer grabbed that old toy and he jumped off that platform and he caught the boy. He said, son, it's yours. It's yours. Someone has paid the price of your toy. It's yours. I watched as that little boy took that ragged dog and held it to his breast like it was the only thing he had in life. And I watched him as he walked around the edge of that crowd. He kept, he kept looking toward the back. He would stop and get up on his toes and he would look to see if he could find that man who paid the price of his toy. One night I was that boy. God said, who wants to come to heaven? I said, I do. Please, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. I want to come to heaven, please, God. God said, John, what do you have to pay for your sin? There's a wage to sin. It has to be paid. My hands went deep. My robes of righteousness is. I was a Baptist. My dad was a deacon. My mom taught Sunday school. My sister was a church pianist. I was the the president of the youth group. But all those things were like filthy rags. God said, I'm sorry, John. I can't just give heaven away. The price for your sin has to be paid. I'm sorry. And I turned to walk away. Thank God. Jesus. God's son. He spoke. He said, Father, give that boy heaven and put it on the cross. And that night, August 1st, 1967, as a 15-year-old boy camp, Jesus Paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he, he washed it white as snow. The wounds of Jesus were accepted voluntarily. But I want you to see one more thing. Look at that verse again, verse 6. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I want you to see the wounds of Jesus will one day be acknowledged visibly. Now I don't have time to give you the historical context of Zechariah 13, but I think if you'll study it, You'll come to the conclusion that the theologians have for hundreds of years and that this period it's talking about is the millennial reign of Christ. And someone will look at him, Jesus, during that thousand year reign and say, what are these wounds in thine hands? Notice, they will not ask, what are those scars? When you and I get a wound... We treat it. We, we maybe need, need some surgery. We have stitches afterwards. They close the wound, and with proper medication, proper therapy, whatever, it heals. And, and most of us tonight could point to a scar on our body from a previous wound. But you're going to see these wounds. They've never healed. 
they're yet visible. Do you remember when Jesus rose from the dead? He appeared to his ten disciples in the upper room. Remember that? Judas, of course, had committed suicide, so he was not there. Thomas missed church that night. We don't know why. But ten of them were in this room. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. And suddenly, Jesus appears in the room. He, he didn't come through a door. He didn't climb through a window. He's just, he's just there. And the disciples are, are afraid. They, they, they don't know what they're seeing. They, they think they're seeing a ghost. Because he's in his glorified body. He's in his risen body. And they're not sure who this is. And he, and he tries to talk to them, but they, 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 they had joy, but they were wondering. And so Jesus showed them his hands and his side. What would that prove? That's where the wounds were. Now Thomas wasn't there. And so after the disciples found Thomas, and they said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. He's alive. We've seen him. He's resurrected. And Thomas said, except I shall see the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails, I will not believe. Apparently Thomas had a P.O. box in Missouri. The show me state. I won't believe it till I see it. And after eight days again, the disciples were within and Thomas with them, the doors being shut. And Jesus appears. And after a brief greeting, he locks his eyes on Thomas. He says, Thomas, reach hither thy finger. Behold my hand. Reach hither thy hand. Thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas saith unto him, my Lord. And my God. Amen. I've often wondered what it's going to be like to meet Jesus. We're going to meet him. Amen. Maybe tonight. For those who are saved, we will meet him at the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat. You ever wonder what that's going to be like? How's that going to work? There's a lot of us that have to appear one by one before Jesus. That could take a while. That could be like the lines at Six Flags or something. You know, you're just kind of inching up. Oh, we have all the eternity, so maybe it won't be so bad. We, we finally get to the front. We're now standing before Jesus. He has his laptop there. Name, please. Uh, Getch. Spell it. G-O-E-T-S-C-H. First name, John. Address, 43054 Bale Court. Zip code, 93535. Oh, yeah, here you are. Lancaster, yeah. Is that how it's going to be? Probably not. I've often wondered. When I look at him for the first time. And I see those wounds. In his brow from the crown of thorns. 
I'll be reminded of the wrong thoughts, wrong motives, wrong desires. I won't be able to look for long. My eyes will drop to his side. And I'll see the wound there. And I'll be reminded of how often I drifted. I walked afar off. My eyes will drop further to his hands. And I'll see that print of the nails. And I'll be reminded of the things I did I had no business doing. The times I could have served, I was too tired. My eyes will drop to his feet. I'll see the wound there and I'll think of the times that I was placed as I shouldn't have been and times I should have gone, I didn't go. The wounds of Jesus will judge my life. I've wondered what it will be like for someone who does not know the Lord to stand at the great white throne judgment to be sentenced by Almighty God to a place called the lake of fire forever. Their name not found in that Lamb's book of life and thus cast into a lake of fire. But I've wondered if before God dismisses you to eternal damnation, if he would say, hey, Before you go, I want you to meet someone. Son, Jesus Christ, God's son, comes to the throne. God would say, son, show him your hands. And like he locked onto Thomas's eyes in that upper room, he will lock eyes with you. And he will say, give me your finger. It's it's okay. Give me your finger. This was for you. Give me your hand. It's all right. I did this for you. Why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you ask me to forgive you? I paid for your sin. Why didn't you ask me to be your savior? They will be without excuse. My friend, if you're not saved tonight, let the wounds of Jesus draw you to Christ in his salvation. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt and all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands, demands my soul.
my life, my all. Friend, you don't have an option to get saved tonight. You have an obligation. Jesus Christ died for you, whether you go to heaven or hell. He paid for your sin, whether you ever ask him to save you or not. You have an obligation to trust Christ. And Christian, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. How dare we say this is my life? How dare we say, I will live it as I please? No, we have an obligation to give him our soul, our life, our all. May the wounds of Jesus bring you to salvation. And may it bring us as his people to surrender and to service. Our heads are bowed.